Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it uh, is still speaking, that it's still alive for us today. Uh, even as we're getting ready to open up Isaiah, almost 2,500 years old, uh, it's still relevant for us. And we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would draw us close and, and help us to truly really hear your voice tonight. So please have your way with us, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So tonight, we find ourselves in the book of Isaiah. Wednesday nights, we're doing overview through the Bible. Uh, we are marching through and uh, doing roughly a book a week. And we say it, I try not to say it every week. I don't like to say something every week because then it, you start to tune it out. But, uh, you know, overviews on Wednesday night and in-depth overviews on Sunday morning are great uh, supplements and they're great additions to personal time in the Word of God. They are not replacements, right? So absolutely, come to church, absolutely fellowship with the believers and worship in a group and all of that, but uh, don't mistake it uh, for a replacement because the Lord is giving you His Word so that you can connect with Him, so that you can know Him. So that being said, we are on our way through, uh, we're almost well, we're getting close to the New Testament. You know, I told Dad earlier this year, I said, we were talking about end times prophecies and things. I said, you know, I'm going to get to teach through Ezekiel and Daniel before you do. He said, big deal. I'm going to get to teach through First and Second Thessalonians before you do. And I realized today, if he's not fast, I'm going to get through Ezekiel and Daniel before he gets through Thessalonians. So, um, anyways, tonight we're in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah uh, begins a shift just a little bit in the... Uh, in the Old Testament. So we covered the histories in the first section. We then covered the poetry, which would be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Tonight we begin the prophets. And uh, Isaiah is the first of what's called the major prophets. And then we have the minor prophets. And they're not broken up by importance. It's not like the major ones are more worth your time and the minor ones are, if you have time, it's that the major ones are longer. And so, uh, in a sense, it's more of a major effort to read all the major prophets. Um, so that would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations, because those two really go together, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. And so uh, we're going to do those all in, in four weeks, and then we'll be in the Minor Prophets, and then we'll be in the New Testament. Um, but Isaiah starts us off with, really, the books of the prophets in the Old Testament. And as we're looking at the prophets, um, prophecy really is too distinct things. Prophecy is foretelling, which is when you say, you know, this event is going to happen in the future at some point in time. Uh, that's a form of prophecy. It's also what some people call forthtelling, and uh, which is an unnecessarily fancy word. Basically means telling people what the will of God is for right now. So uh, both are really speaking for the Lord to people. One is telling future events, and one is saying, here's what the Word of God is saying right now. And, so, and they're both important, and we're going to see them both throughout these prophets. We've seen them already a little bit in the lives of Elijah and Elisha. There was a little bit of both. Uh, you know, Elijah came in and said, there's not going to be any rain until I say so. And sure enough, there wasn't any rain until he prayed and, and the Lord sent the rain. But he also would say, okay, it is time for you right now to worship the Lord. It's time for you to turn to the Lord right now. And then, the, so he's a prophet in both senses. And I think that's just good for us to remember because anytime we are uh, 
anytime we're speaking the Word of God, anytime we're looking at how does the Word of God apply to our lives or how can we help someone else apply it to their lives, we are, in a sense, walking in a prophetic ministry. And, and that's important because there needs to be a sense of responsibility with that when we handle the Word of God. We need to not take it as this, you know, these are cute stories, these are nice sentiments, this is maybe ancient wisdom literature. No, no, this is the Word of God, and we have responsibility to treat it as such. And so we're going to get to see in the lives of the prophets um, just one character after another who absolutely treats it as such. So Isaiah uh, is, again, the first of the major prophets. If you're reading it, um, which you will be because it's, you know, your time with the Word, um, Isaiah is 66 chapters long. And uh, if you're looking for like a broad picture outline, um, Isaiah is a fascinating book because it's broken up very much like the Bible itself. It's 66 chapters, the Bible 66 books. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah uh, deal by and large with judgment and with, you know, sort of, uh, here's the word of God, you walk in it, you're blessed, you don't walk in it, and there's going to be consequences. And it's very much reminiscent of the Old Testament where we see Here's the law of God. Here's how you walk in it. Here's what you need to do in order to be holy by the law. And chapters 40 through 66, there's 27 chapters there. There's 27 books in the New Testament. And uh, those chapters are much more about the promises from God that we have, that the Jewish people had, but also a lot of promises that apply to us as Christians. And then a lot of principles for relationship with God. And so really the book divides sort of into an Old, Old Testament similar similarity section and a section that's similar to the New Testament. And it's just an interesting thing. You know, the chapters weren't put there originally. Um, Isaiah would have written down the whole book and the chapters were added in uh, much later just to help everybody get to the same page as we're reading in a group. Um, it's a lot easier to say, go to chapter 6 than to say, go to that part where he's talking about, you know, when King Uzziah died and we all say... Okay, wait, that was on the right-hand side. I think it was on the bottom. Um, so the chapters are there to help us find our place. And, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, similarity that helps us sort of keep the book of Isaiah in, in a bigger picture context as we're reading it. So, um, so we're going to see a lot of prophecy. We're going to see a lot of of, you know, prophecy in the sense of future events and in here's the will of God. Isaiah splits them up very evenly. He does not write in a chronological sequence. We talked about this a little bit last week. We said with Song of Solomon, you know, Eastern literature is very different from Western literature in terms of how it's understood. And it's helpful for us to understand it because in Western literature, if I'm telling a story, uh, I usually start with what happened first, and then I go to what happened in the middle, and then I go to what happened in the end. In Eastern literature, there is no guarantee that that's what's going to happen because it's told in a little more of like sort of a circular pattern where we have this basic theme and we're going to go around and then we've got sort of our main point and then we're going to come back around to that opening theme. And so the way Isaiah is structured, it's not chronological, which can be a little bit confusing, but... Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's broken up so we can sort of have clusters of thought, okay? That's part of why we have sort of more of a judgment section on one side and more of a promises from God section on another side. But as we're looking at the prophecies in Isaiah, it's important for us to remember um, that prophecy is a little bit like 
looking at a mountain range. And if you're looking at a mountain range from a really far way away, far way away, from a really far distance, um, it can be hard to tell sometimes which mountains in front, which mountains in back. They might be a little bit hazy, right? And you, just, you can kind of squint. And you're like, I'm pretty sure this mountain is closer and that mountain's farther away. Well, as you walk closer and closer to those mountains, it becomes more and more apparent which one is where. And so with some of the events tonight, so prophecy is a lot like that. So sometimes as Isaiah is delivering a prophecy, the people at the time would have known, okay, this is a future event, but we're not exactly sure if this is like two years, two millennia, two centuries. And as we're looking at Isaiah about 2,400 years later, we're closer to that mountain range. And so there are some areas we can see, oh, this was distinctly a prophecy that happened, you know, within a couple centuries of Isaiah's lifetime. Oh, these are prophecies that very specifically were pointing to Jesus' first coming. Uh, but there's still some prophecies that we look at and we say, okay, this obviously is a prophecy that hasn't happened yet, but I'm not quite sure if we're talking about when the Jewish people come back into the land like they did in 1948, or if we're talking about when the Jewish people really are establishing their identity like they will be in the millennial kingdom, or is this more of an eternal reference to heaven? So there's some areas where we're going to read stuff that, frankly, we still don't understand, but we read it because as we walk with the Lord, he gives us wisdom for what we need to know, but also as we live life, we are marching by virtue of time closer and closer to these events. And so they are actually clarifying themselves in a sense right before our eyes. And we'll get to talk about this a little more in the next couple of weeks as we get to Ezekiel and Daniel. But there are events that are clarifying themselves constantly that are helping us have a better awareness of, I think that's where this prophecy is talking about. Um, even things that have happened, you know, this year that are, gonna ha that are helping sort of reveal like, oh, I could sort of see this prophecy manifesting this way. And so, um, so some of these prophecies are very distinct and very direct. Some of them we still look, and because Isaiah is telling from an Eastern culture, sometimes he tells them all in a very tight window. And so sometimes you've got to look and say, okay, wait, is this, uh, you know, is this, this part of the prophecy is definitely about Jesus' first coming. I think this part's about the second coming. But it can, and sometimes the prophecy is a little bit twofold, right? Sometimes there's a portion of the prophecy that's fulfilled. It was fulfilled in Jesus' first coming and a portion that's going to be more fully fulfilled when he comes again. So that's that. That's sort of the big overview of Isaiah. And now we're going to dive in a little bit closer. Um, so chapter 6, because Isaiah doesn't tell in a chronological order, chapter 6 really is kind of the opening of Isaiah because it's Isaiah's call to ministry. And we've been talking about on Sundays, this is relevant to who? Everybody who's been called to ministry, which would include all of us, right? So Isaiah's call to ministry. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, King Uzziah was one of the kings over Judah, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. So Isaiah has a vision of the Lord. He sees a vision of the Lord seated on his throne. The temple is filled with his glory, and angels are flying around declaring the holiness of God. 
And then verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah comes face to face, or comes into the presence of God's holiness, and his response is an awareness of his wickedness. And that's what the holiness of God always creates in our hearts. It creates an awareness of the distance between us and God. You can't look at the holiness of God and consider yourself better than somebody else. You can't look at the holiness of God and consider yourself a mostly good person. You can look, look at the holiness of God and consider yourself a wretched sinner. And that's really the only option you have if you're truly aware of the holiness of God. But verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. So Isaiah, this is a really important for us to grasp. Isaiah sees the holiness of the Lord. And then by virtue of that fact, he sees the wretchedness of his own condition. And then he is cleansed with a coal from the altar. Okay, a, uh, a live ember from the place of sacrifice. And then he's sent. And after that is when the Lord says, who wants to go? And Isaiah says, me. He doesn't say what's involved. He doesn't say what are the insurance benefits. He doesn't say how many vacation days do I get. Isaiah is going to devote his life because he has seen the holiness of God to serving the Lord. Isaiah is going to live his life until he is killed. And most commentators believe that Isaiah was killed by being stuck in a hollow log and sawn in half. Okay, Isaiah gets the call from God and he goes and declares the word of God until a person with enough power and authority finally finds a means to try and shut him up. And even that fails because we're still reading the words of Isaiah 2,400 years later. But it's important for us to see this because this is how I think a call to ministry and a call to serving the Lord always goes. Okay? The way we are called, the way we're equipped to serve the Lord is this. We have an encounter with the holiness of God. And that forces us to have an awareness of our own sinfulness. All right? If you see the holiness of God, you become desperate for God to do a work in your heart because you realize you can't do it yourself. And then the Lord cleanses Isaiah with a live ember from the altar. The altar is where they offered sacrifices. Isaiah is cleansed by the fire from the sacrifice. And I think this is important because when we come to that awareness of our sins and the holiness of God, what happens? We ask the Lord to save us, to deliver us. And Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that Jesus paid, covers our sins and we're cleansed and we're holy, right? But it doesn't say that they took the blood from the altar. It doesn't say they took the lamb that would have been on the altar. It says they took a live coal. Isaiah is cleansed with fire. When John the Baptist came in the New Testament, he was baptizing people with water, and he said, there's one coming after me who's going to baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And a call to ministry is only actualized. That's a word, right? Yeah, it's a word. It is now. A call to ministry only comes to pass in any level of effectiveness when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit begins to work through us, to cleanse us, to empower us, and to give us His power. Right? When we have that awareness of God's greatness, that awareness of our wretchedness, and that need for God to f step in and, and fill our situation with Him, that is when the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, 
and the power of the Holy Spirit can really move in our lives. And that's when, at that point, we can, like Isaiah, say, here am I, send me. That's, that's the order, that's the sequence, that's how a call to ministry works. The Lord wants to call us to that awareness, okay? And so that's Isaiah's call. So Isaiah goes on, um, and we're going to sort of jump through the first 39 chapters pretty quickly, and then we'll try and spend a little more time in the second half. Um, but Isaiah 11, chapter, well, chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 says, starting in verse 1, says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Isaiah says there's a branch coming. There's a shoot springing up from the stem of Jesse. And the Spirit of God's going to be upon him. And he's going to delight in the fear of the Lord. He's not going to judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Uh, so the Savior's coming. He's not going to judge based on what we look like or what we sound like. Praise the Lord, right? Uh, the, it's not about the smart people getting into heaven or the good-looking people getting into heaven. It's about those who are cleansed by the Lord. And he will judge the earth. He's going to judge the earth fairly. Now, interestingly, um, it describes here a branch springing up. And we look at that and say that's kind of an, you know, it's probably metaphoric in a sense. But curiously, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew says that Jesus grew up in Nazareth so that the prophecy would be fulfilled that says he'll be called a Nazarene. If you read the Old Testament, there's nowhere in the Old Testament that says Jesus is going to be called a Nazarene. But the Hebrew word uh, for Nazareth, the word Nazir, means branch. So when the Bible speaks of a branch arising, it is in a sense a metaphor, but it also is curiously, in a sense, you could almost say, and then somebody from the branch town is going to rise. So it's a little bit metaphoric, it's a little bit actual, but it's a prophecy about the Messiah coming. And again, some of these things we've seen already fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. Um, the Spirit of God has already rested on Christ, right? We saw that at the baptism of John the Baptist. He's the Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel of strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. All those things were present at the Lord's first coming. When it says, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked and he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, that hasn't fully happened yet. That's, in a sense, been partially true because death has been defeated, but it hasn't been fully realized yet. And so it's, again, it's one of these prophecies where we see bits and pieces and some of it's fully fulfilled, some of it's partially there. Chapter 20, uh, we're not going to, chapter 20 is a really short verse, but basically um, it's a verse that just gives us a little bit of insight into Isaiah's relationship with the Lord. And um, a lot of times we think it'd be so awesome to have a relationship with the Lord like Isaiah did, right? To be able to just write you know, this is what the Lord is saying, and I know this, and this is what the Lord is telling us to do, and I had this, you know, I heard this distinct voice. Well, with that kind of uh, access to the voice of the Lord comes certain obligations, like total obedience. And so in Isaiah's time, uh, the Lord required him to do some stuff to help the people understand the word of the Lord. So chapter 20, verse 2, 
At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. That's just a tad awkward, don't you think? It gets better, though. And the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and a token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt, and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. So, I read that not to be awkward, but to point out, Isaiah has got a level of relationship with the Lord that, at first glance, we say, wow, that would be so cool. Until you stop and think about, what exactly would I be willing to do for the Lord? Because the Lord has asked us to, the Lord has said, who's going to go? And, and oftentimes we want to say, here am I, send me, uh, with some qualifications, right? I'm, I'm happy to go, Lord, as long as you send me anywhere that has AC. I'm happy to go as long as you send me anywhere that has, you know, uh, at least like mattresses, right? Any place that doesn't involve humidity or like we, we, we give the Lord these qualifiers of I will serve you if, and the Lord is not really interested in I will serve you if. The Lord is interested in woe is me from a man of unclean lips, here am I, send me. That is what the Lord wants. The Lord wants our lives to be totally devoted to him. Now, with that being said, uh, being told to walk around naked was a specific call for a specific time. If you show up at church and tell us that the Lord told you to walk around naked, we will escort you out of the building. Um, but there's a principle there of a willingness to obey the Lord no matter what. Chapter 31, we're just going to... Uh, Pop over real fast. He says, chapter 31, verse 1. Uh, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Um, here we're going to see um, Isaiah saying, he's warning the people, right? He's saying, don't go down to Egypt to trust in, for, for security. And we see this over and over throughout the scriptures. Israel was always tempted to go back to Egypt uh, as a means of financial security or military might. And the Lord always told them, do not go back to Egypt. And in the New Testament, as we look at things, we realize that Egypt is a picture for us of sin, of the worldly system. And just like the Israelites were taken out of Egypt and they crossed through the Red Sea, in a sense, we have been taken out of the world system by crossing through like the Red Sea of Jesus' blood, and we're in the promised land. And so we don't need to go back to the world to find fulfillment. We don't need to go back to the world to find security. We can stay in, the rela in our relationship with the Lord. We do not lack anything that the world can give us that the Lord can't. Now, it's also important for us to realize, just while we're parked here, um, as we're looking at a lot of these promises from Isaiah, Isaiah, especially as we're getting ready to transition to the, the second half of Isaiah, where there's a lot of just beautiful promises from the Lord. We have to stop and make sure we understand the context because there are promises that are given at this time to the Jewish people. And there's a, a train of thought in the church sometimes, not this church, but sort of the global church, that says, you know what? The Israelites had a chance. Jesus came. They didn't accept him. So the Lord just sort of said, I'm just going to flip all the promises that I had for Israel, and I'm going to now apply them to the church. And that is, uh, A, stupid, B, it's a little bit blasphemous, and uh, D, C, whatever it is, C, uh, that offers us no comfort. Because if the Lord can change his mind when a group of people uh, don't fully 
walk with him, then that means he could change his mind on us. And so we, we never want to say, oh, the promises for Israel have been switched over to us. Okay? But in Romans, Paul is talking about the gospel and, and what it means for us. And he makes the point that's really important that the Jewish people are part of the family of God. They're part of sort of the tree of God's family. And he says, you guys are wild branches and you've been grafted in. And so we are, if you're a, a Gentile believer, if you're a person who's not Jewish in ancestry, which I think is probably everybody in this room, um, if you're not Jewish in ancestry, but you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have not replaced the Jewish people. But you have been brought in to receive many of the blessings that are promised to the Jewish people. Now, there are some specific physical promises about like the city of Jerusalem and when the nation of Israel comes back into the land and, and their country got reborn in 1948. Those are specific promises to sort of the geographic region of Israel. And so we don't want to turn those into metaphors and allegories, but there are some promises about the character of God and the nature of God and the blessings of a relationship that do very much apply to us as Christians. Not because we've replaced Israel, but because the Lord has brought us in, right? We've been grafted in. We are not the originals. We're not, you know, the vintage whatever. We are add-ons, and we should walk in that awareness. So with, you know, incredible thankfulness for the heritage of Judaism and, and the law, but also an awareness of the fullness of Jesus Christ. We have to appreciate everything that the Lord has done and is doing through the Jewish people, but we still recognize we're Christians and we're part of the new covenant. So with that being said, we then shift over. So chapter 31 right there, that little piece about Egypt, it's very much a warning to the nation of Israel, but it's a warning to any Christian, to any person who has a relationship with the Lord, right? Don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to the world system. So chapter 40 shifts gears. It's really when the whole book shifts. We go from sort of that Old Testament section to kind of the New Testament section. Um, chapter 40 is just a beautiful chapter. I would encourage you to read the whole chapter. I'd encourage you to read the whole the book of Isaiah, for sure. But really, 40 to 66 is just an incredibly encouraging portion of Scripture. It's, it's a beautiful passage of God just pouring out His love for His people, being honest about still dealing with sin, but just lavishing His goodness upon them. And so, chapter 40, uh, we'll just read a little bit of it. Start, we'll start in verse 12. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales? Who can hold the oceans like this, right in their hand? Or who can look at the universe and say, okay, let's see, it's one, two, three arm breaths across, or whatever. And he's using metaphoric language, but who can who can? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. The, the greatest powers that be, all the wealth in the world is nothing in the eyes of the Lord. It, it's nothing compared to the greatness of God. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? 
As for the idol, a craftsman cast it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fastens chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. God says, okay, here's who I am, right? I can hold the entire oceans in the cup of my hand. I can measure off the heavens. Nobody, I didn't ask anybody for wisdom. I didn't do any research to create the world, right? I invented black holes and atoms and, and you know, light wave frequencies and all those things. And who, what are you going to compare me to? He says, the rich ones of you build little statues and cover them with gold. The poor ones of you build little statues made out of wood. And if you're lucky, they don't fall over. He says, the best you have when you try and recreate God according to your definition is you get an idol that doesn't fall over. That's its like greatest asset, right? Woohoo, my idol stood up. Uh, it's well balanced. Wow, great. God says, that is worthless. And, and it's just a great promise from God to remind us, A, of the greatness of God and B, of the absolute stupidity of trying to trust in anything for strength. Trust in anything other than the Lord. I don't care how secure you think the stock market is or you think the real estate market is or you think, you know, well, even if those crash, gold is always valuable or if those all crash, alcohol is always valuable. I don't care what you think is valuable. The only thing that's going to hold any kind of long-term value is the Lord, a relationship with the Lord. And so we're going to just see that throughout the rest of this book. Chapter 45, we're not going to read it, but in the context of prophesying as being foretelling and telling future events, Isaiah describes the man Cyrus, who the emperor of the Persians, who wound up letting the Israelites come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And it's a great prophecy because he even describes um, that Cyrus is the one before whom doors opened. And it kind of sounds metaphoric until we realize historically that Cyrus captured the city of Babylon because somebody opened the doors of the city. And different people argue whether or not it was intentional or whether or not it was accidental. But basically, somebody swum in, swam in through the riverbed, came up, walked in from the inside, opened up the gates, and the whole Persian army just walked in, said, hey, we're in charge now. So he's prophesying this 150 years before Cyrus comes. Um, Isaiah, interestingly, gives enough specific prophecy that some scholars try and say, well, there's actually two different Isaiahs, and, and one wrote, you know, the first half of the book before the time of Christ, and one wrote the second half of the book after these events had been happening, and he made it look like prophecy, but really he was writing history down poetically, and that's baloney, because, uh, A, we have copies of the book of Isaiah that predate Jesus Christ. And so, the prophecies about Jesus Christ were written down for sure, before Jesus was on the earth. But even these prophecies that people try and say was written by different people, Jesus quoted from both of those two sections of Isaiah and gave credit to Isaiah both times. So Jesus is pretty smart. I'm willing to concede that he probably knew what he was talking about. So book of Isaiah is written by one man. Chapter 53 is sort of the, um, sort of the iconic chapter in the book of Isaiah. Um, because it's a description of the crucifixion. It's a description, some people describe it as the suffering servant. And it, it's, uh, he's writing about Jesus Christ during his crucifixion. And, uh, and so you really, you can't do an overview of Isaiah really without pausing just to reflect on the amount of detail that Isaiah is writing with here hundreds of years before Jesus 
about what Jesus is going through and uh, what's encompassed in the crucifixion. And some people have called Isaiah the fifth gospel because he gives us so many of these little details about Jesus Christ. He says, surely, in verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, and we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that's led to a slaughter and a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth." It's just an incredible picture, it's an incredible prophecy about Jesus Christ saying that the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Every sin that was ever committed can be paid for through the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross because it was sufficient, it was full, it was all that's needed to bring us into a relationship with Christ. It gives us details, it says he was silent. Jesus didn't scream out, he he wasn't cursing the the guards or the Jewish system, He, he bore it all quietly. Uh, and it says that he was with a uh, wicked man in his grave and a rich man in his death. Jesus was hung between two thieves and he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And uh, Jewish history would say Joseph was probably one of the richest men in all Israel, if not one of the richest men in the world at that point in time. So his, his grave was with wicked men, but his death was with a rich man. There's all these little details, but it's, it's painting for us a picture of Jesus Christ to make us aware, even to make the Jewish people aware in the Old Testament, your king is coming. He is not just this great conqueror who's going to defeat all your enemies. He's also a suffering servant. He's going to actually be crushed for your sins. He's going to be pierced for your iniquities. And the Jewish people did not really absorb this. They absorbed the parts of, they were willing to absorb the parts of Scripture that describe Jesus as conquering all their enemies. And he's going to, right? Is Jesus going to destroy sin? And wickedness from the earth? Yes. Has he done it yet? No. We are not living in the millennial kingdom. We are not living in heaven right now. We are living on earth. And it's rough and tumble. Right? But he has come the first time as a suffering servant. You know, we describe when he rode into Jerusalem as the triumphal entry. Truthfully, when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, that was the humble entry. The triumphal entry is going to be when he comes out of the sky and he lands on the Mount of Olives. And the force of the impact splits the mountain in two. That's the triumphal entry. Okay? But understand, Jesus is both of these. Isaiah is giving us these two pictures, and as Christians, we can look and see both sides of it. We can see, oh, he came as the suffering servant, and now he's going to come as the conquering king. And we live with that awareness of both sides because we are absorbing the entire word of God and accepting all of it. Chapter 55, we'll start in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, this is one of those promises in this book that is just super incredible. Are you going through something rough? Are you going through something you don't understand? Something that's challenging? Something that's beyond your comprehension? Well, then it's good to remember that God's ways are not your ways. That uh, the extent to which the heavens are higher than the earth 
is roughly the same extent to which God's thoughts are above your thoughts. Do you know how far above us the heavens are? They're pretty darn far, right? They are way stinking far out there. God's thoughts are that much bigger and broader and more expansive than ours. So we look at our world and say, well, this doesn't make any sense. How could God do this? I, you know, I wanted this. I needed this. I prayed for this. And God says, you have no idea what you're talking about. He usually says it graciously. Um, but there's this context. It's a great encouragement to realize, oh, I don't understand everything that's going on. And that's okay because the Lord does. The Lord's thoughts are above my thoughts. But Verse 10, just another incredible passage. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and they don't return there without watering the earth. So rain comes down. It doesn't go back up into the clouds until it's soaked into the earth and making it barren sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The word of God will do what it is sent out to do. If you want to receive wisdom, okay, we talked about this last week, Proverbs is all about wisdom. If you are looking for wisdom, the Word of God will give you wisdom. If you're looking for strength, the Word of God will give you strength. And it will not return, in a sense, to the Lord until it has done what, it's con- what it has been sent out to do. The Word of God will impact your life. And we live with that belief. We hold on to that. And so we treat the Word of God. We approach the Word of God like it means something. We approach the Word of God like, it is, like God is going to speak to us through His Word. And God can totally speak to us through visions. He can give us words of knowledge and words of wisdom. But more often than not, the most common way for the Lord to speak to us is for us to open the Word and say, Lord, I'm right here. I'm ready to meet with you. Please speak to me through your Word. And He does. He's incredibly faithful to speak to us through his word. Just a last couple more before we wrap up. Chapter 59, verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. God says, pay attention to this. My spirit and my words shall not depart from your mouth, from your offspring's mouth, from their offspring's mouth, forever and ever. The word of the Lord stands forever. And the power of the Holy Spirit stands forever. And on the the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up. He says, this, well, we'll read it. Why not? All right. Every once in a while I try and butcher something and it just doesn't go well. So we're just not going to even try. Um, they said to Peter, brethren, what shall we do? Verse, Acts 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Some people think that the things that happen in the book of Acts happened during the time of the disciples and once the disciples died off all those miracles died off and basically we really don't have this anymore this was a specific gift from the Lord for the church at its onset and, uh, and there's a lot of phenomenal people who think that right? I'm not, I'm not bashing them for thinking that there's a lot of people who I 
absolutely respect. There's pastors who I listen to who think that and teach that. But, nicely put, that's ridiculous. Because Peter says, this gift, if you repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you, and it's for your children, and it's for all who are far off, and for as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for every single person who the Lord calls to himself. So if you have believed in Jesus Christ, then you are offered the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you have never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit comes in you when you become a believer, but there's another preposition that's used in the book of Acts that describes the Holy Spirit being upon you, like just working in and through your life and empowering you and giving you the strength you need, right? That's a relationship with the Holy Spirit that we are all fully capable of having, and we get it by asking for it. And that promise, the Lord said... His spirit's not going to depart and his word's not going to depart in Isaiah from now and forever. Peter made sure in Acts to make sure that we knew this promise applies to the Jewish people and it also applies to us. The power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God are both alive and active today and they are both fully accessible to us. Right? How do you, how do you receive the word of God? Do you open it up and read it? How do you receive the Holy Spirit and all this power? You ask the Lord to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And if you're tired of frustrating Christianity, right? If Christianity is this yo-yo or this, you know, riding a bike uphill or good days and bad days, and you feel like you're trying to drive a car that's out of gas, then you need power. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is freely accessible. Jesus promised to give it to us. So if you don't have it, ask for it. And, and allow the Lord to bring his power into your life. And then lastly, as we're wrapping up, chapter 66. Last spot we'll park for the night. Thus says the Lord, chapter 66, verse 1. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? Remember, God's the one who said, I can you know, measure off the heavens by the span. I can hold the oceans in my hand. If heaven's my throne and earth's my footstool, what kind of house are you going to build for me? Right? What kind of cathedral can you build that's going to be big enough for God? What kind of temple or tabernacle or altar can you build that's going to be worthy of that kind of power and might? You can't. Right? Now, there's nothing wrong with having a nice church building. Okay? But don't, under don't misunderstand that it's just a building. It will eventually burn. It will be destroyed. So, he says, for my hand made all these things. Anything you're going to use to build a church to the Lord is already said that he already created. So it's not really like you're being super original, even if it's your best work. And he's not saying that to belittle it. He's just saying, you guys gotta understand, you're not really gonna build me anything that's super significant. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God says, okay, the heavens are my throne, the earth is my footstool. There's really no house that you can possibly build that's gonna work logistically. So I don't want a house. I want what? A heart. God is really not interested in massive church buildings. Not that they're wrong if, you know, whatever. Um, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God is looking for hearts of people who are humble and who tremble at the word of God. Who, people who say, 
I'm not that great. Uh, I've seen the holiness of God, and I'm aware of my sinfulness, and I am ready to receive the word of God. I'm going to live like the word of God matters. That's where the Lord is looking to park. That's who the Lord is looking to move through and to move in, right? And the beautiful thing is, that is any and every, that can be any and every one of us. He did not say, to this I will look, to him who is attractive, or to him who is, you know, over five foot eleven, that would rule me out, or to him who is whatever, or whatever, or who has this much money. He said, no, I'm looking for the humble person. Any person who is humble and willing to live like the word of God matters can watch the power of God move through their life and can, by the power of God, have a relationship with God. You can have the fullness of the presence of God, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, can be fully present and active and operating in your life if you are willing to live like the word of God matters. And that's why, so that's our great and glorious privilege. That is what the Lord is opening up to each and every one of us. And so I love that Isaiah sort of starts and ends in that same vein, that Isaiah had that call from the Lord, and then chapter 66, he kind of just reminds us, remember who the Lord's looking for? Isaiah wasn't necessarily, you know, we don't have a huge amount of info about Isaiah, um, but what we know for sure is he was humble and he trembled at the word of the Lord. He lived with an awe and a reverence for the word of God. And he finished up his book by reminding us any and every one of us can have that same access to the same Holy Spirit, to the same word of God. And so it is available to each and every one of us. Next week, we're going to go through Jeremiah and Lamentations, I think, together. Um, so if you guys have all been paying attention to Dad on Sunday mornings for the last several months, which I know you all have been, then really next week is almost, you don't even need it because you know the book of Jeremiah so well at this point. So no pressure, but you know, I'm just letting you know. Um, anyways, <clears throat> let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that, uh, that like Isaiah, that we would recognize the holiness of you, that we would recognize who you are, how wonderful you are, and that by that we would recognize our need to be cleansed and that we would walk in the cleansing that you're offering us, that we would walk according to your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would equip us and send us out and, and have your way with us, God. God, empower us, help us to know you so that we can be used by you. Help us to be a part of your plan. Help us to uh, just have that, that reckless abandon like Isaiah did to say, here am I, send me. Wherever it is, to whomever or wherever, God, we want to, we want to have that relationship with you that allows us to not care where we go or what we do as long as we're with you. So have your way with us, God. Go with us now as we're leaving from here. Just please fill us up with all the power of your Holy Spirit. Fill us up with a, a hunger for your word and with the fullness of your word. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our suffering servant and our conquering king, that we pray. Amen.